COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquajo.ca. Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadro Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome back, Quadcast Nation. Solving wellness community. We have a doozy, baby. We got podcaster, author. We got Sacred Cow. We got Wired to Eat. Host of the podcast, The Healthy Rebellion. And he's also set up a beautiful community to talk about all things related to health. Rob Wolf, he is back. And I'm excited to bring this episode to you. Because we dive into fasting. Who's it for? Does it suit the lifestyle of healthcare professionals? What are the, the exceptions? Why would you not want to fast? Who, who's it a bad idea for? Who benefits the most? Uh, selfishly, I got into how it affects working out too. Sorry, y'all, but I'm, I'm certain there's a few of y'all that would be interested in the topic as well. But man, Rob throws down. Um, before jumping into the episode, I want to tell you about Solving Wellness. Those that aren't on this bad boy, it is becoming beautiful. Over 150 members, virtual workouts, yoga sessions, cooking tips, cooking advice, nutrition advice, sleep advice, stress management tips. We're doing it all, baby. And it's been so exciting and, and the feedback has been tremendous. $99 for the year, $9.99 per month. You get your first month for free. And yeah, we're, we're collectively changing that boogie and supporting each other and reducing that burnout. So thank you for those that are supporting. I hope you, uh, hope you're enjoying this. But without further ado, yo, let's just jump on it. The one and only Rob Wolf. Let's go. All right, Quadcast Nation solving wellness community. Ha! We got another doozy. We got the legend, Das. Rob Wolf is back. Rob, welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. I'm always game to uh, bring down property value. So thank you. 
Amazing. Last time we talked, you were in Texas. You're in Montana now, closer to my my what I call my motherland, Alberta. I'm, I'm sure you're loving the the community, um, the mountainous environment. I hope that's going well for you. We we love it. The kids don't hate me anymore, so that's a that's a good thing. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So the reason I I brought you back was to talk about fasting and or time restricted eating. And the reason I thought it'd be important to talk about is a lot of our healthcare providers, this is something that they're entertaining the idea of either uh, starting, they're, they're doing it. Some people are trying it and struggling with it. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough, and I'm victim of this too, as a guy that does the time restricted eating is trying to really determine who would benefit and who you got to really think about why, like, really should they be doing it? So maybe we could start off with where even the the basics will start off with like what you think some of the benefits are from a fasting point of view. Yeah. You know, so uh, just as a bit of context, I wrote my first article on uh, intermittent fasting in 2005 and uh, really was intrigued by this, this notion that maybe we could hit this sweet spot where you're getting all of the benefits of, uh, you know, that we saw from like the calorie restriction research, um, but then also could optimize performance on this too, you know, so this balance of performance, health and and longevity and whatnot. Um, By 2006, I deeply regretted releasing this intermittent fasting paper because it, it went out mainly to a CrossFit oriented crowd and, um, God bless our, our CrossFit folks, but you know, if they're anything, they're type A. And what I started noticing is that people would report, you, you know, or, or they would, they would ping me and they're like, Hey, I'm having some problems. Can you take a look at what I have going on? Sure. What, what's happening They're Like whether it was male or female, um, I've had retrograde performance for six months. I have no libido. My hair is falling out. I cry at Hallmark, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, commercials and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, well, give me a breakdown on like your nutrition and training. And it's like, well, training, I do CrossFit six days a week. On my off day, I do hot yoga and a 30-mile ruck march. And, you know, they're just like totally crazy, you know, crazy amounts of volume and intensity. And, uh, and then they're also intermittent fasting 20 or 22 hours a day. Um, they eat five grams of carbohydrate a month. And I, and, and what, what these folks had done is they took a bunch of good things, put them all on steroids and then stuck them all together. They made a buffet of pain out of this stuff, right. you know, and, and uh, we, it, it's fairly, if there's one thing that we know for sure that simply exercising, whether you're, you're overweight or normal weight is good for you. Um, not overeating is good for people. I think it gets dubious beyond not overeating, whether calorie restriction or fasting does much for us versus just simply finding a spot where we adequate protein, get adequate nutrition, and we're not overtly overeating. Like I, I think that that starts becoming actually uh, kind of a challenging proposition to, to sell, but people had a lot of problems. They were exacerbating this overreaching, overtraining kind of kind of phenomena the supposed benefits of fasting calorie restriction, you know, it's supposed to be um, enhancing autophagy. We get some cellular turnover. This is supposed to be beneficial for a host of, 
uh, chronic degenerative diseases. But there's a couple of things that are interesting in, in all of that, like uh, uh, Brett Weinstein, uh, you know, back in 2002, published a paper talking about how the mouse models that are used for everything from like uh, drug toxicology to these longevity studies, these mice have been selectively bred in such a way that they end up with remarkably long telomeres, which makes them just incredibly resilient to cytotoxic stress to things like huge amounts of fasting. It's, it's all, it's something that folks don't understand is that there have been experiments and they're kind of gnarly, but where they will fast and calorie restrict animals to a very high degree. And it shortens lifespan. Like there, you know, there, even within these animals, there's a, a, uh, you know, a diminishing return. There's a dose response curve in that whole story and really uh, aggressive amounts of fasting enhance autophagy to such a degree that the animal, the organism burns through its whole stem cell pool. We hit this hayflick limit where there, you know, cells can only replicate about 50 times. It might be a little bit more in a, a living organism versus a Petri dish, but there is this reality that there's a balance between turning cells over and ideally letting them run the, the full course of their life cycle, but not become senescent, not become cancer. And, and there's a, a, a middle ground there. And, and something that folks don't appreciate is that you can fast an animal to death very, very easily and not from starving it, but it actually runs out of stem cells and it ends up with multiple system organ failure because there's nothing left to repair things. So mm. there's a real balancing act in that. I don't think it, it, it's tough because somewhere around 2004, 2005, nobody's exactly sure, but humanity made this really interesting shift in that more people started dying from chronic degenerative disease, from diseases of affluence, than from infection, starvation, malnutrition. And that's the first time in human history, like all of our history prior to that, the uh, uh, deaths were attributable mainly to uh, communicable disease and malnutrition. Then we made this shift and it's catastrophically horrible. It's increasing uh, healthcare costs at an exponential rate. It's increasing morbidity and mortality. You, you, you see it every day, your earlobe deep in it. So it's really terrible. But at the same time, this um, somewhat, in, in my opinion, blunt tool usage of fasting is a little bit concerning too. I, I think a lot of people would benefit from just finding a normal, you, you know, what is a, a healthy level of food consumption for them individually. And that's no small task in a modern hyper palatable food environment where all this food around us is engineered to, to bypass the neuroregulation of appetite. Like it's no small order to, to, to figure out how to get people to just eat in a way that they don't poison themselves from too much eating. But then the flip side of this is folks in kind of the paleo, low carb, ancestral health space, and even in, in you know vegan communities and stuff like that. The the lunatic fringe that's willing to to experiment with things. These folks, in my opinion, are going way overboard on fasting. They're they're doing too much, and they're not considering some of the uh, the potential deleterious effects. And you know, honestly, when I personally look at the literature, and I, I really look critically at it, I don't see much upside above and beyond. It is a tool for calorie restriction. 
And uh, Peter Atia did, a, he, he's got a really slick way of kind of organizing the different ways that we can, we can attack food. Like we can take a qualitative approach, like we're going to change what it is that we, whether it's, you know, pro, protein, carb, fat ratios, um, we can tweak the amounts of what we're eating. And then we can also tweak the timing of what we, what we are eating and that, the, the, the real benefit, in my opinion, of the time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, if you have somebody that is really challenged with changing the composition of what they eat and limiting the amount of what they eat, but they're willing to change the timing, you're like, hey, eat kind of whatever you want, but do it between the hours of like 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. That can really work for folks, and, and they can wrap their head around that it, it, it works for them. Some people like me, I, I do really quite well with, you know, modifying the the type of things that I'm eating. I do pretty well on a low carb diet that satiates me. And, and then I, I find a spot where I don't overeat as a consequence of that. So um, I know that that was like this big rangy uh, 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 borderline, uh, you know, Parkinsonian answer where I'm bouncing all over the place, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of underwhelmed with the, the real benefits of fasting other than if any way that we can figure out a process in which people don't overeat. Like if the person is overeating and we figure out a strategy for not overeating, what happens physiologically is magic. Like they get healthy, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just miraculous. And so I think that much of what we view as the benefit of fasting is just figuring out a way of not overfeeding the organism. And when the organism is no overtly overfed, magic happens, health happens. I think, I think this is fantastic, Rob, because I think most people that are, are looking to do this, they're doing it for improving their metabolic health, in my opinion, or more directly to, to lose weight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so Framing it. Yeah. I heard Peter on a, I, I think it was on his own podcast, framing it that way too, about the macros, like white, white type of food you're eating, the, the amount of calories or, or, or look at the timing. And, uh, and I think it's important to think about what your goal is um, because yeah. some people will, will enter the fasting realm for the, the longevity components and what have you. But I would say for people in, in my world, the healthcare providers, 99% of them are looking at it for improving their metabolic health, reduce their weight gain um, and, and, and approaching it that way. And, right. um, and, and also in my mind, without being, I've never really gone into the weeds of it. The two elements that I, th I thought from that made sense to me and why it helps from a metabolic point of view is the yes, you're you're potentially reducing your calories because your your eating window is reduced, but also like the amount of time your uh, your like the, your ability to improve your insulin sensitivity because you're not having that all that time with with insulin spikes or what have you. Yeah. I don't know if that, if uh, you want to touch on that too, about the insulin sensitivity aspect or if, in terms of what you've read, uh, if that's a consideration. It, it is. And it's something that shouldn't be um, downplayed there. It, uh, I don't have the study off the top of my head, but I, I could ping it to you. It's in a, a folder I have, but 
folks looked at a, a group, two groups of people. Um, they were fed isocaloric diets that not isocaloric. They, they were uh, calorie matched for their, their size and activity level, but it was a mild calorie restriction. So they were calorie restricted, but they tried to match it uniformly within the two groups. One group had three meals a day. One group had six meals a day. The six meal a day group had poorer metabolic endpoint markers than the people that were eating less frequently. So mm-hmm. I do think that there is some, and, and they were already calorie restricted. Like both groups mm-hmm. saw some improvements, but the less frequent eating group saw better improvements. So I do think that there is a, a humans are not grazing animals. Like we don't, under ideal circumstances, we eat a meal and we can go ideally a pretty long period of time before we get hungry again. And even if we get hungry, if we did things right, if we are metabolically healthy and flexible, we should be able to go significant periods of time without eating and not like crater, not get hangry, not have significant neurological, you, you know, changes, and uh, my wife's a great example of this. Like she can eat carbs. She cannot eat carbs when she goes, when she eats keto for a period of time, there's no difference with her. Like she doesn't notice going in and out. Whereas Flexible. a lot of people, it feels like hitting a, a brick wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she can also eat significant amount of carbs and it just doesn't matter. And I think that that is kind of what humanity kind of should be but not everybody's Italian. So it's, you know, and as, as my wife's genetics. And, and so yeah, people like me that I'm pretty lean, I'm pretty active, but I have pretty, pretty uh, hard carbohydrate upper limits. I start getting up above about 50 grams of carbohydrate in a given day. And I experience problems with that. And I do notice that two meals, two meals and a snack are good for my digestion. It's good for my cognition. Um, that, that seems to work pretty well. And there is good, there's credible research that suggests that we don't necessarily need or want to eat six times a day. We shouldn't be three meals and two snacks. And you know, that, that there are metabolic negative consequences, largely, uh, uh, we get it, uh, endotoxemia exposure. Every time we eat, there is a certain inflammatory response with moving food from the gut into circulation to be distributed around the body. Um, I think that that endotoxemia piece where we're pulling a little lipopolysaccharide out of the intestinal, you know, uh, uh, content, I think that might be the primary driver of the insulin resistance, because mm-hmm. as, as you know, so a septic, patient is stunningly insulin resistant. And usually mm-hmm. they will administer significant amounts of insulin to recover that person. So it, it's, uh, I, I think it possibly has less to do with the food and more to do with being exposed constantly to kind of toxic intestinal content. Now that said, I don't know that one meal a day is like infinitely better than two meals a day, particularly when we start playing around with the balance of like, uh, uh, overwhelming the digestion with just one meal and also, uh, thinking about nitrogen balance and like maintaining muscle mass over time. Um, Mm -hmm. again, once we get past the, the very challenging process of finding a way to help the vast majority of people that are, are overweight, have metabolic, you know, derangement and whatnot. Um, a lot of the thoughts around fasting and calorie restriction, particularly with this longevity focus is, Oh, I'm suppressing mTOR, um, activating autophagy, all this stuff is this hedge against cancer. But 
folks act as if this is like a guaranteed process. If I just fast, I won't get cancer. And uh, something that folks, most people don't realize is that say like in that um, identification of the cancer process, mTOR complex one needs to be activated early in the identification of cancer cells to then follow into activation of mTOR complex two when we're like activating T cells and some of the immune response. If mTOR is globally suppressed, you don't identify the cancer on the front end. You actually end up with greater, you know, risk of cancer on the back end. So you need some amount of mTOR activation, which is activated by proteins and by carbohydrates and by calories in general. We don't want to overdo it, which I, I think is, you know, when um, we see like really heightened levels of cancers, chronic inflammatory diseases in both animals and in humans that are overfed. It's like, okay, that makes sense. And mTOR is definitely a player in that. But something that really gets missed is... Uh, all of us have a, not, a, a risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and neurodegenerative disease that is some number less than one, most likely. Like it's not a, a guarantee for anybody. There's some, some risk profile there. All of us have 100% guaranteed uh, we're, we're going to experience age-related sarcopenia, you know, muscle mass loss. And I, I see folks eating so infrequently and so low protein in the hopes of suppressing mTOR and these growth factors that I, I, I see folks um, making kind of a Faustian bargain. Like they mm. are giving up uh, the, the muscle mass and the resilience that they have now in the hopes they won't get a disease later. And they're likely to end up with worse things like they're going to yeah. be so frail that they end up dying from frailty issues and not like the chronic de degenerative disease issues. I, I see folks in ironically kind of the, the ketogenic diet scene that are eating um, less protein than raw vegans are eating mm -hmm. and, uh, you, you know, and are, are do, doing these really extended fasts and, and uh, the, these folks don't look healthy. They, mm -hmm. they look frail. Um, they, they, they're chronically cold and I just don't think folks are are properly appreciating some of the the trade offs there. And and again, um, this is for kind of a fringe crowd. This is maybe like one percent of people that are even you know tinkering with their diet and lifestyle to such a degree that they get themselves painted into this corner. But I don't. The, the, it, it is a non trivial number of folks, and the mm -hmm. the balancing act here is always. Well, but the vast majority of people that are struggling probably would benefit from some degree of intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, um, certainly focusing on a very protein-centric diet because of the satiating effects and the nutrient density and all that type of stuff. Yeah, it's it, so in some, like to summarize, like in some ways, you know, if you're looking to improve your metabolic health, definitely this seems to be advantageous um, as, as one of many options to, to try and achieve your goals. One of the areas that seems to be where you got to be concerned or could be distant. Uh, well, I'd say you got to be careful. It sounds like just taking it to extreme, like in terms of duration and thinking about what you're eating. Because this is what, this is my concern with some of, not so much of our our healthcare providers, but some of the people that are are taking the fasting to extreme, is that you're, are you? you I don't think I worry that you're not eating enough. 
You know what I mean? I, right. I worry that you're losing muscle mass and selfishly it's, I, I'll tell you too, Rob, it's one of those things that I I'm always kind of thinking about to myself as a guy that, um, I mean, I've been fasting now or, uh, for over three years. Um, I feel like my, my weight is about the same, but you, you always got to think to yourself, you know, why, you know, once again, why are you doing this? Is this, is this, right. are you, are you able to achieve your goals through these techniques of like me? maintenance at this point so actually maybe right. my, my direct question is what do you think about fast ending or rich or time restricted eight, uh uh eating when you've kind of like you're in your sweet spot where you're you, when you're like for example yourself where you're happy with your weight you're you're happy with your metabolic profile you know wh- wh- what do you think about that in terms of uh adjustments or changes yeah, that's a really good question. So we've we've done the work of getting metabolically healthy. Um, we're pretty lean. We're pretty active. Uh, my gut sense is like 16 hours of fasting is pretty good, probably better than 18, certainly better than 20, uh, you know, for most days. And again, like if you have a day, like uh, travel days uh, usually end up being pretty significant fasting days for me because the food options kind of stink. Fasting helps to uh, reset circadian biology. So like if I'm going from like West Coast to East Coast or something, like it helps you to to kind of get uh, uh, set up with your your new circadian rhythm when you travel. So there's some benefits there. But day in, day out, I, I think that that thing of like you try to make an early dinner, front loading the bulkier calories earlier in the day seems to have some modest uh, uh, metabolic benefit. I think that that's all smart. Maybe once a quarter doing like a three-day fast. I think that's great. But if the person is wondering, you know, should I be doing 18 hours of fasting per day versus 16? Or if they're asking, should I be doing uh, an additional day, you know, full day of fasting per month or adding, and you know, going uh, 48 or 72 hours, adding another day to it. And they're not already doing two to four days a week of strength training, put the strength training in there, you know, get outside and get sun on your skin, Um, drink some coffee, have uh, meaningful social relationships, join a Brazilian jujitsu school. So you're learning new movement, new, new, uh, uh, you know, basically a, a, a language of, of movement and whatnot. Like, those are things that we know are so effective on the anti-aging side and enriching our life and whatnot. Whereas once you're at that spot where you're pretty lean, pretty healthy, I think that some of the time restricted eating, if anything, it's helps on the convenience side. Like I've been finding that I do a big breakfast. I might have a little snack at lunch and then I do a modest dinner and I, I have two, two, young daughters, they're, they're seven and nine years old. If I had my, my preferences, I would eat a, 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 a big breakfast, do some type of training around noon, have a, a good size meal at like two or three o'clock and I'm done. But it, you know, family dinner time and all that stuff is important. So I, I kind of modified that, but I think that that uh, convenience of just not being tied to a super tight eating schedule, um, is, is, you know, beneficial too. like people are stressed and harried and trying to, you know, carve out three meals a day. Like I, I can't believe how challenging that is between work, homeschooling our kids, just being around the kids and, and all the rest of that stuff. So like 
for me, deleting lunch is like this huge win. Like I'll just have a little bit of salami and cheese and I, I, I just kind of motor through and then have a, another significant meal later on. So I, again, just, uh, I think like about 16 hours of intermittent fasting most days makes a ton of sense. Front loading calories and carbs makes a lot of sense. And then from a real down the road risk mitigation story, like I do want to try to hedge my bets against cancer, neurodegenerative disease, and, and create a little bit more metabolic resilience, you know, cause that, that punctuated stress response. I think like a two or three day fast once a quarter, that, that seems great. And it's mm. interesting. A lot of the big movers and shakers in the fasting scene have really pumped the brakes on things like seven day fast, 10 day fast and, and whatnot. I think that they started noticing some, some deleterious effects around that. And I, I think maybe because I was so early in this, I just saw those problems emerge earlier and, and uh, you know, it's kind of convergent evolution on that with, with some of the other folks in the scene. Yeah, because you were like an early adopter, you were able to see some of the negative consequences of those extended fasts. But yeah. uh, I'm actually encouraged from what you're saying, because, you know, if like once again, doing those daily fasts or the time restricted eating, you know, not having negative impacts on uh, muscle mass, for example, because mm -hmm. one of the things my that I find quite helpful is working out in a fasted state. I, I honestly, I prefer it. And ironically, some of my best lifts have been during those fasted periods. Nice. And so uh, to me, it's one of the, it's, it's something that I, I, I love and I'm hoping to keep going for sure. Um, and, but just a couple of other thoughts too. Like, I think it's, I, I want to reinforce this really thinking about that protein, uh, intake i think we don't talk about it enough anymore like maybe it's because i've been hearing a lot of keto talk but uh which sometimes it's like high fat like the emphasis is on the fat but right. I, I i think um we can't forget about that I can't forget about the value of resistance training like uh, amongst the other things you said the community moving or constantly getting outside but i really like to emphasize the resistance training because of its impact on insulin um i, I think it's so important the other thing I was I was meaning to ask you about too is any um, advice for getting you through the fast. Like I, I there's a, there's a few people that often ask me, you know, you know, I I just I'm finding it too difficult. I feel lightheaded. I feel mm -hmm. I just feel like shit. And often I said just eat. That's a sign to eat. But any right, any, you know what I mean. But like, is there anything else that you kind of that could help people get through this? This is tough. One part of this is tough because on the one hand, I was saying people who don't want to do quality uh, modification of their diet, you know, fasting can be a tool and it can be, mm -hmm. but if you're eating pretty junky food and it's kind of low, low protein and it, it, it's a mix of uh, kind of processed fat and carbs, um, there's kind of a reality. You're going to get really hungry. Like when that fasting period hits, you're going to be really, really hungry unless you happen to be pretty metabolically flexible. So that's a problem. This is where um, some emphasis on quality of food is important in that very protein centric approach, getting a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass all the way up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight is a pretty good bracket. And so if folks are kind of like, I don't really want to change the stuff I'm eating, then at least like if you're going to do burger and fries, 
Maybe you do a burger with two patties, ditch one bun, you, you know, the top yes. of the bun and then yeah. have some of the fries, you know? Yes. So we've got more protein. We've got more fat. You're, you're not totally the weirdo that's changing everything. You know, if, if you're, <laughs> you know, you're out at a business meeting and people are like, what are you doing there? And you're like, I'm just eating some more protein because it sticks with me and I have better, better blood sugar control. And people are like, cool, but you're not totally the weirdo that it's like, okay, two burgers, no bun, no French fries. Yeah. You know, all that, but it, a little tweak that direction goes a long way so towards, good, you know, helping people to, to navigate that fast. And then the other part is electrolytes is, is just Word. this thing that is, you know, huge, um, naturesis of fasting, you know, this massive sodium and fluid loss that occurs when we are fasting or in a, a low carb eating strategy. Um, it's a huge deal when insulin levels drop aldosterone drops and aldosterone is kind of our, our primary hormone that causes us to retain sodium. And this can be problematic in the hyperinsulinemic person who retains too much sodium, too much fluid, and they end up with hypertension. And we, we know that that's a, a terrible thing. And the fun, it's kind of funny. Um, the water weight loss that is associated with fasting weight loss in general, and low carb diets in particular is often kind of, um, denigrated and, and, you know, dismissed or like, well, you're just losing water, water weight. weight it's like, yeah. but that, that just water weight is like your cardiovascular disease risk just, mm. just decreased, you know, because you're, you're not hypertensive and not beaten up on your vascular endothelium. So that that's actually a really good thing, but that can become a really nasty downward spiral, you know, and this is where folks experience things like the keto flu, lightheadedness, um, lethargy, fatigue. And this was a piece of my puzzle that, you know, I'm pretty good on the biochemistry and metabolism and everything, but the, the, the need for electrolytes, specifically sodium in the fasting period was just not on my radar until, mm. you know, four years ago. And I, I just, man, if I, if I could go in a time machine, there's a lot of things I would change. And one of them would be like, I, I would really imprint into my brain, this, this understanding that, Oh, electrolytes are, huge in this story because you were a bit resistant to it if i remember listening either to a podcast or something i think you were like slow adopter when it came to the electrolytes i was yeah because i was talking to a couple of world experts on this stuff and what do you do when you talk to a world-renowned expert on something you ignore it you know <laughs> you, of course you don't you don't listen to that advice straight out of the gate you know so yeah i was slow to coming to this but you know an, an interesting angle on this, or at least I think it's interesting, is that some of the compensatory mechanisms for fasting and low-carb diets, if sodium isn't adequate, is a release of epinephrine, a release of cortisol, these stress hormones, and some of their secondary features are to cause us to retain sodium. Mm -hmm. So if the body is stressed because it's shedding sodium and then you start shedding potassium to try to maintain your sodium potassium ratio, if that is happening, then the body, you know, it's like, well, aldosterone is suppressed because of low insulin. So it can release cortisol and epinephrine, which can, you know, I think that some of the like adrenal fatigue and HPTA axis dysregulation, thyroid dysregulation that we see in low carb diets to say nothing of just the lethargy, fatigue, keto flu, all that type of thing. This is all a consequence of just not getting enough electrolytes and, and wow. specifically the sodium piece, because the it's interesting. Um, the body does better 
if we get a little too much sodium, the body is able to deal with that much more effectively than too little sodium. Like it, it's yeah. sodium is kind of the, the linchpin. And if that is right, the body will hold on to calcium. It'll hold on to magnesium. It'll hold on to potassium. The sodium isn't quite right. The body will start jettisoning all these, like it'll jettison calcium because it's stripping sodium out of the bones to try to normalize sodium levels. And it will pull out calcium along with the, the sodium. So that's problematic. Um, it'll start jettisoning magnesium because again, all of these, I, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I've been noodling on this. I, I think outside of pH, the only thing as closely tightly regulated physiologically as pH is probably electrolyte status. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. It, like we see it all the time. Uh, like if you're, for example, your chloride is going to have hypochloremic metabolic acidosis as a result right. of, of, yeah, of having uh, too much chloride. So a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and those things will kill you. They'll make you feel horrible very quickly and they can kill you in, in pretty quick order. So somebody ends up in a, in an emergency room and they're unconscious. Like the, the first things that a doctor looks at is pH and electrolyte status, because yeah, those things will, you know, um, will get you. So, and when you think about, um, every thought we have, every muscle contraction we have is a consequence of sodium potassium pumps that are integral to this whole electron transport system, ATP production and whatnot. It's not surprising that a, a, dis, a disordering or a dysregulation of sodium potassium ratios, you're going to feel like garbage really quickly. So, I mean, this ranges all the way from like the um, emergent life-threatening scenario of electrolyte you know, imbalances to, I cleaned up my diet, my insulin levels decreased, my body hasn't equilibrated yet. And I feel horrible either on a low carb diet or in these fasting periods. And what folks find is that, you know, during these periods of fasting, if they get their sodium in particular on point, it's smooth sailing. Like they don't get hungry. They don't get that kind of neurological fatigue. They don't get that really like over caffeinated feel from like dinging on the, the adrenals and, and whatnot. And, uh, I think that that is one of the just so, um, unsung heroes of being able to fast effectively, you know, is, is just getting adequate electrolytes. Yeah. So thinking about that protein intake, but, uh, when it comes to that electrolyte, I, I in my personal experience, that was one of the clear game changers. I used to just salt the, my water. First thing I do when yep. I wake up, I put salt in my water and then just uh, throw down like uh, close to a liter. Um, and then during the day, if I'm sometimes you're fasting, right. And because of actually need at work and you're like, Oh, you know, it's like, you know, it's 1230 and you're, you're not, you don't have access to like something that you want to eat a little bit of salt, actually just having yep. a little bit of salt at that time. And it, it is amazing how quickly everything changes your, your yep. hunger, your alertness, that lightheadedness will, will dissipate. And so to me, this was something that was a game changer and, and it's great. I, I mean, obviously we're, we're uh, backers of element. We're, we will be obviously posting it on our, our site there, but um, it's just a nice way to, to just navigate through, you're fast uh, is just yep. having that electrolyte support. Um, and so like what, what made you like it, you obviously, you know, element started to, once you 
I, once you went in, you dove in in terms of right. the electrolyte uh, um, side of things. So, like, how do you use your like element, for example? Are you using it while you work out? Do you you work out while you do it uh, post workout? Like, how do you integrate it into your daily practice? Yeah, so I I will do like a chocolate salt in some coffee um, first thing chocolate in the morning. Salt. Yeah. On, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did we not send you some? I, I don't know. I don't think I got chocolate salt. I'll double check, but I've been, I've I been will really. Fix that. That. Wow. I, when you say that, it makes, brought me like uh, my eyes widened, but like I've been, I've been going to town on the watermelon. Like I've just been, it's been okay. too, yeah. So um, I'll double check, but uh, chocolate salt. I, I, I will fix that. That was an oversight on our, our part, but you know, I amazing. like having a cup of coffee in the morning um, shifted to mainly decaf. Like I put a little bit of caffeinated in it, but yeah. uh, I, I don't know if um, it's one of these signs of aging, but I, you know, the detox pathways don't, don't offload caffeine the way that they did when I mm. was a, a whippersnapper and I just get kind of jittery and everything. And, but um, the, the, I'll do a little bit of the coffee, a little bit of whole cream, and then mix the chocolate salt in there. And it just tastes amazing. And it, it's cool in that um, it's almost like meditation or something. Like after you do meditation or like some cyclical box breathing, for me, I guess it's getting more in that like kind of parasympathetic, like calm state, but it, it's, you know, I, I just feel calm and kind of, kind of grounded. Um, so I definitely start the day with that. Like I just feel better with, with that kind of, kind of straight out of the gate. And then from there, I definitely mix up, like I'll, I'll mix up a couple of things like this, like about 16 ounces, 16 to 20 ounces. I'll have two of those that I take with me to jujitsu. I'll mm-hmm. drink one of them on the way to jujitsu and I'll sip on it during our, our uh, skill portion of class, which is demanding, but there's a lot of Q and a and, you know, breaks and whatnot. And, and so it's not super, super demanding, but as we get ready to do the live rolling, which is usually about an hour, either five or 10 minute rounds doing that, I'll go over and grab the other, the other can and I'll drink about half of it right before I start rolling. Mm -hmm. And, um, maybe about 30, 40 minutes in, I'll go over and sip on some of the rest of it. And like, I'm almost 50. Um, there's a bunch of like savages down there that you you know big big strong dudes and everything and i i hang right in there like i have good performance um i i i'm I'm not super beat up um there was recently a paper that was looking at at post-exercise sodium loading and decreasing doms and uh improving hrv and and basically overall improving recovery and it it was just fascinating post-exercise post-exercise so i'll do a little bit pre, a little bit peri, and then I definitely do some more post. And mainly what I pay attention to is like, am I feeling kind of tired? Am I feeling lethargic and kind of foggy headed? And it's funny that I'm a co-founder of the company, but I'll be motoring along and I might be a little snappy with, with the kids or my wife or something. And Nikki will look at me and she's like, have you had any electrolytes? I'm like, no, because I'm an <laughs> idiot. You know, of course I didn't have electrolytes. And, and, uh, so I'll, I'll do the pre peri and post. And then, uh, the other spot that I, I do one, I take the raw unflavored and I put it in just a little bit of water and mm-hmm. I do that immediately before bed. And, um, I don't get any GI distress from that though. Like I have a lot of gut problems, but like, uh, 
absorbing concentrated electrolytes, I have zero issue. Other people mm. doing what I, I do, doing basically like an ounce or two of water and then putting the whole um, unflavored element pack in there, a lot of people that would send them to the toilet. So like, yeah. <laughs> you know, be be careful on that. But uh, I learned from Chris Masterjohn that uh, doing that sodium before bed does some cool things with the antidiuretic hormone and kind of tuning down the adrenals so that you stay asleep through the the whole night. And that's a pretty typical, you know, day's use for, for me around that. And I also try to consume sodium rich foods like olives, pickles. I don't shy away from good quality salami and, and, you know, like doing salami and cheese and stuff like that. Like I don't shy away from it because I, I am largely keto, uh, but I get good, decent protein, but I get good fat and I get a lot of sodium from it. Like mm -hmm. I, I get a decent whack of sodium. So the, that way I'm trying to get my sodium needs met from my diet broadly and not just relying on a, on a, you know, supplemental form like element. Yeah. Oh, I, I, the, the nighttime one mm -hmm. I find interesting. I would have thought that would have caused you to pee more at night just cause, uh, the os osmotic effects, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it does exactly the opposite. Ironically. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's so uh... it, it, it suppresses antidiuretic hormones. So your, your urine volume decreases during that time because your body is like, Oh shit, there's a bunch of sodium. We need to equilibrate this. So we're not sending it to the kidneys and the bladder. We're going to, mm. going to hold it in circulation. We'll retain yeah. It more. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually, now that you say that, of course that makes, that makes sense. Amazing. I, I, cause I, I do think this is something that, that has changed uh, a lot for me. Even I, I like the, I like what you said about the, the DOMS, uh, the Texas, uh, what's the acronym? The D what's the D delayed onset delayed muscle on soreness. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, cause as a, a guy that's, you know, middle-aged hockey lifting weights, that is something certainly that I've been trying to overcome. And, um, it doesn't it's matter a, so much in your twenties. Once you hit your forties and fifties, you're like, damn, this is going to cripple me. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Um, yeah. the other thing I, I'll be remiss not to mention, I've been reading more, uh, about like some demographics, like say middle-aged women having a, a tougher time with, with fasting. I, I don't know if you've come across this in, in any of your, uh, experience or literature, and just it, it was implied to me that it could be more like a, on the hormonal side, like mm -hmm. that, that the fasting could uh, impact them. And so like they don't see as much benefit metabolically or, or weight, at least weight loss wise from um, like whether it's time restricted e eating or these extended fats uh, fast. Sorry. Any thoughts on that? You know, if we think about this, if we put kind of our evolutionary biology lens on um, it makes sense that women would experience hormonal issues really quickly in a, a, a calorie or nutrient deprived state. Like biology is like, you were not, if you're not eating enough, you're not, you're not in a good position for reproduction, you know? And, and, uh, but here's an interesting thing that I've seen. I've seen a lot of women that got broken from low carb eating from fasting and stuff like that, but also the most successful people doing those things I've seen are women. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this kind of really schizophrenic thing where, where uh, like the, the first really uh, high level keto fueled jujitsu player that I ever ran across. Like I would search like who's using keto for jujitsu. And 
the first person and then the first people I saw, you know, people winning world championships, gold medals in uh, jujitsu were women and they were eating keto. And I was like, damn, that is weird. Like, again, it's this really kind of weird schizophrenic thing. But what I, I further discovered in, in a lot of that was that, uh, these gals were not eating the low protein version of keto. They were eating right. more of a modified Atkins, adequate protein, adequate nutrition. Um, if you're eating more protein, like some people in the keto scene get weirded out by protein because it is insulinogenic. You do get it somewhat of an insulin release. But again, you know, hat tip to Peter Atia. He's done some amazing work in this space. He had that very low, like four to one um, classic epilepsy ketogenic diet that he tinkered with for like three years. And he did a lot of fasting and he did a lot of exercise and his insulin was undetectable. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I don't know if that's a good thing year over year, <laughs> you know, like insulin actually does do some important stuff and insulin ends, uh, insulin release ends up modifying like sex hormone binding globulin. It has effects on testosterone and estrogen release and metabolism. And so I think that that adequate protein, like it's doing a bunch of different things. You're even if you're mildly calorie restricted, it still is sending a signal to your body that like, we're okay. We're getting enough nutrition. Yeah. We're a little calorie restricted, but that, you, you know, we're still consuming the things that we really need. Um, and then if people are on top of their electrolytes, I think that that's another big part of this because uh, again, it like the, the gnarliest thing that we could do to somebody is fast them and uh, electrolyte, uh, restrict them. And I ironically throw a lot of water on top of that, like a dry fast. Interestingly, people seem to navigate it a little bit better because we make about 200 milligrams of uh, 200 milliliters of water per day, 200, 300 mill milliliters of water per day from metabolic processes from, from, you know, uh, uh, metabolizing fat. I think a little bit of the problem that people have in the modern world is we drink too many liquids and then we end up in that hyponatremic state just from over consuming water. So yeah, let's take a woman and we're going to calorie restrict her fast her. Um, she follows the standard dietary advice around water and you drink lots and lots of water. So we're shedding sodium like crazy. Um, we have this stress response from that, which is dinging the adrenals. We're releasing cortisol. We're releasing epinephrine. And we're adding a, a two large amounts of water on top of that without electrolytes, which is worsening that whole process, ironically. And one of the first things that cortisol and epinephrine antagonize is testosterone and estrogen production and metabolism. So I... I could see where that would get women into the deep end of the pool really, really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a hat tip to my, my co-founders of Element, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor of Keto Gains. Their platform, they have 180, 190,000 people in, in their Facebook group. It is 85% women between the ages of like 35 and 60, and they are not collapsing in mass from like these hormone dysregulated, you know, situations, but they are neurotic about adequate protein. Um, they hound people to not under eat protein. And then they are as religious about sodium intake as they are on getting your macronutrients. Right. And I think mm -hmm. that those are really the, the big factors there, but I think that this is, you know, when, when a woman says, uh, uh, 
I experienced hormone dysregulation from low carb and or fasting. Like there, there is also the reality that some of these things are just not appropriate for some people. Like that, right. it, it's just not a good fit like that. That's it. But I think that there's another cross section of people for whom they were eating too little protein. Um, they were taking those fasts too long again, you know, like 16 hours that that's fine. Every once in a while, maybe a little bit of a, a longer fast, uh, I think context is really important too. Like if you're a really mellow, calm computer programmer, not a really stressful job, doing a little more fasting is probably fine. But like if you're a medical professional, a cop, a firefighter, a new parent, you are already so fucking maxed out. Like you, you are just over the, you know, your allostatic load is enough for like 10 people. And then you throw a signal into your body that is like, oh, by the way, I'm starving to death too. And we would expect our body to not just like go bananas on that. Like it, it, it's asking too much of our, our very adaptable biology. But I think that there's a lot of nuance there, you know, I, I, but I, I would say that I think that women benefit more from consistency. And so like if they're looking at kind of a weight loss strategy, man, that adequate protein, we, we do, um, three resets a year within our healthy rebellion community. And I have people that have followed my work for 15 years. They love paleo, they love keto, but they're like, ah, I, I never have been able to, you know, really get the body composition I want. But you, you think that they're familiar with my work. We hold their feet to the fire to weigh and measure their food. And none of these people are eating adequate protein. They're 50, 25 to 50% deficient in the, the, bottom level of protein they should be getting. Right. And so the, the long and short of that, I've never seen somebody with body composition issues that was eating adequate protein. Like it never wow. happens. If you eat adequate protein, the body composition just kind of magically comes in as an after effect. And when you start eating adequate protein, you do a really robust breakfast. It's smartly composed. You motor long and you're like, it's lunch and like, I'm a little snacky, but I'm not bad. And again, maybe you have a little, little, some, some jerky or something to get you through. You don't really need all that much. You do some exercise. Then you like dinner time rolls around. You're like, damn, I'm hungry and I'm going to mm -hmm. eat because I had breakfast and I had a little snack. And then you, you get to have a very satisfying protein rich uh, meal too. But I think women do really well on a schedule like that. And maybe a little bit of fasting, but I do think that they need to be cognizant that their system is going to be more reactive to stresses like that because it, it should be. Yeah. Now the, uh, I like what you said. Number one, the consistency. I think I, I could echo that, how important that is for, for many of our, our, our listeners. The other component is I actually don't think people realize how much protein is like enough like when you right. say a gram per lean body mass, or if you know some people uh, 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 gram per uh, per uh, pound, like that's mm -hmm. a lot of protein. It's actually. a lot of protein. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I don't. So hearing you say that a lot of people don't don't achieve their protein needs or goals, um, and it doesn't match up with their body composition. I guess it's, uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's not surprising. Um, yeah. Because once again, that's a lot of, it's a lot of protein. It is a lot of protein. And the, the funny thing is folks go from this spot of, I can't stop overeating. Like I can't stop doing that. I, I, I just eat all the food. I eat all the food. 
then we get them eating adequate protein and they're like, good God, I can't eat all this yes. food, you know, yes. please, can I reduce my protein intake a little bit, you know, and, it, and, and you can have other stuff, but it, it, it's, uh, it's eye-opening how satiating and how nutritious it, nutritious it is to get those protein-centric foods and really make that the, mm -hmm. the hub of your, your dietary intervention. And I think a really simple way to tackle that is by hook or by crook, make sure you get that protein two or three meals a day, you know, some, somewhere around there. And because of the amount of protein, three meals a day may be better, you know, because it, it, we are asking you to eat a significant amount of protein. And then from there, figure out, do you run better on a little bit more fat? Are you a little bit better on a little more carbs and, or, or maybe a combo of those two? And then the final little cherry on the Sunday, as I ask people to be aware of immunogenic foods, like my, if you have some gut issues, if you have some inflammation issues, um, Maybe we should avoid gluten. Maybe we should avoid dairy. You know, maybe, maybe you react to eggs, which is a huge bummer in, you know, telling people to, to eat a, a very protein centric uh, way. Um, for years, I attributed a lot of problems that I had. I, I thought it was blood sugar dysregulation, but I, I was intolerant to eggs. Like it gives me really foggy headed kind of response, but that's kind of the cherry on the Sunday. And it, it, it really is operationally super easy. Like Mm -hmm. Just make sure you get enough protein, figure out if you run better on fat or carbs. And that takes a little bit of tinkering. It's pretty easy to do. And then like, if you have some remaining, you know, niggling problems like gut issues or something, let's take a look at immunogenic foods. Oh, I love it. I love it, Rob. I know we're on the clock, but I just got to ask you quickly. Have you played with CGMs? I have. Yeah. Of course, and, he, uh, of course he did. It's in yeah. your book. Just because uh, one thing that came to mind when it came to the protein aspect of things, one, one thing that I noticed personally is that if even if I have carbs, but if I front load it with the, the proteins or, or, or something fatty, must mm -hmm. much less of a spike compared to like if I yep. have a, a ton of carbs first and yep. then uh, hit up my protein. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean that uh, man, bodybuilders knew that back in the 80s. You know, yeah. the bodybuilding magazines would say, eat your protein first, then your fibrous veggies, and then eat your carbs last. And mm -hmm. science dismissed it for ages, you know, for 30 more years. And it was like, oh, if you eat protein, then fibrous car uh, veggies, <laughs> and then your carbs, it dramatically attenuates the blood glucose response and all kinds of good things come from that. And that's where looking, there's a lot of weird bro science and stuff like that. But people at that um, physique competitors know a lot, like they mm -hmm. just experimentally and coaching wise, those people know a lot. And a, it, it, there's, it, there's never going to be randomized control trials for lots of it. Um, they're, they're, or, or the things that we discover usually 20 or 30 years out of date. But those, those folks, when, when um, performance and gold medals and things like that are really on the line. Like the, the coach that is there tinkering is a scientist. They're, they're not conducting like a, a peer reviewed trial type thing, but they are experimenting. They're pulling different levers and whatnot. And, and uh, yeah, uh, it, 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 and that is such a powerful tool. And again, um, let's say somebody doesn't, they, they're just like, dude, I just don't want to, you know, I like my nachos or whatever. And it's like, yeah. cool. I love nachos too. When you order them, get triple meat yes. and tell the, tell the proprietor, I will pay you for three plates of nachos, put three plates of meat on the nachos 
and you pick through and you eat the protein first. And then you have a little bit of guacamole with it or a lot. And then you, you kind of, you know, you do your, your damage on the chips. That is going to be an entirely different response glycemically, metabolically versus this protein devoid plate of nachos that you just crush all these, these fried corn chips and, and there's no protein there. There's not the right types or the, the, the right placement of fat to attenuate that blood glucose response. And these are a lot of the little tweaks where it's like, dude, you don't need to be like, you know, gold star level 10 paleo Jedi to just make better choices. Again, you know, like um, you order a hamburger, ditch half the bun, two patties. Uh, if you do French fries, maybe do half the French fries. Like, you know, but it's like, is that, and for the and for the love of God, don't have a sugared beverage. Like, like <laughs> that's a no brainer. <laughs> that's a no brainer. Like, there, yeah. there is no negotiating there. Do not have the sugared beverage. But is that really like, woe is me? My life is horrible. I just had this a, a meal that someone else cooked for me, and I'm wealthy enough to be able to buy a meal that somebody else cooked for me. And I took one half of the goddamn bun and only ate part of the fries. Like, is my life really over as a consequence of that? Like, we should be resilient and grateful enough to be like, that's awesome. And you will look, feel, and perform better. Like I guarantee that, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it's easy to do, but I, this is a, I think a piece of this, we've gotten so sophisticated in this health and wellness nutrition space. You know, people are like biohacking and intermittent fasting and injecting things into their penis and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But like just telling people ditch part of the bun, don't eat all the fries and order an extra patty on your burger that that is going to provide 95% of the benefit of injecting your penis with, with, uh, you know, leukotrienes and, and all this stuff, you know, it, it's, uh, we don't need to go to crazyville to get almost all the benefits of all this other stuff. This is what I love, Rob. It's like these tweaks and it, it doesn't even have to be, you know, or nudges even to just make yourself that much more flexible in terms of your metabolic health and profile, you know, and um, like the timing of what you eat, the, the macros, having that protein up front, you know, saving the carbs for later. Like this, just little things walking after your meal, by the way, another yeah. great one yeah. for yeah. Uh, reducing that uh, insulin response. Rob, I got to thank you. There was too many gems in here. And that I know selfishly, like, honestly, I often just want you on the show so I could talk about some of the stuff I'm so interested in. But I know as well, our listeners will benefit so much from the benefits from fasting. Who should think about who shouldn't be fasting, how to fast, duration of fasting, how to uh, complement things with, with your metabolic uh, health by what you're eating, the, um, the order of what you eat. So many gems in here, Rob. So from our community to yours, man, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show once again. Doc, huge honor. And thank you for the amazing work you're doing. Like you, you really are at the front line of, of doctors doing amazingly good work and just can't thank you enough for what you do. Oh, wow. Thank you. I mean, you're getting that from Rob Wolf, yo. <laughs> I'll be blushing if I could, Quadcast Nation. Thanks again. Yes, Quadcast Nation, Solving Wellness Community. This was what it was all about. All Things Fasting with Rob Wolf. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. 
Jump on that Solving Wellness train. Go to SolvingWellness.com. Check us out. Join the movement for reals. Leave that five-star rating. Leave that those comments. Helps with the visibility of the show. Go to iTunes. Do that. And honestly, if you're enjoying the show, tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Let's continue to change that boogie together, yo. Thank you so much, guys. We'll connect again real soon. Peace.